Come on, get up, get up, get down with the sickness, fucker, get up, get up, get down with the sickness, fucker, get up, come on, get down with the sickness, open up your heat and let it flow into me, I can see the sickness is rising, and you see all that's good has died, oh yeah, the world is a scary place, come on, you know where it dies. Get up. Come on, get down with the sickness. You fucker, get up. Come on, get down with the sickness. You fucker, get up. Come on, get down with the sickness. Open up your hate and let it flow into me. Oh, yes, it is a sick outfit. Thank you. I'm a uh... I'm looking fresh to death. That's what I'm all about these days, looking fresh to death. And I'm doing it. I'm doing it my way. Oh, right, yeah, I don't, I'm not on that. I'm out here. I'm out here, I'm out here uh, trapping. So today we're going to be doing Chapter 10 uh, of The Dawn of Everything, which is a pretty important chapter. I'd say it's, 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 I think it's the longest so far, and it's definitely one where a lot of the strands of their arguments are starting to really come together into a, a, uh, like a coherent thesis that the more I read about it, honestly, the less uh, importance it seems to have to me. Like, I, I I find myself largely agreeing with what they're saying, and 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 agreeing with how what they're saying is a challenge to, an alternative to really the conventional narratives of of human civilization. But the more I find it, like, get to this point, the more I kind of also think at the same time, well, who cares? What difference does it make? Like they, they're the, the the underlying premise here is that this new understanding of human history has a political valence. Like all of the uh, sort of squinting and wish casting and uh, creative interpretation of evidence that they do, they do pretty exclusively, uh, pretty explicitly on the service of a political agenda. And again, I don't have a problem with that. I I, I, I admire the the. Um, the frankness of that, because obviously everybody is doing that all the time. It's just we're always supposed to pretend and lie about the fact that it, that it's happening, or uh, and give them credit for being explicit with it. But like the political valence of their argument to me seems totally, frankly, non-existent. Like if everything they say is true about how human civilizations evolve, 
I still don't know how it changes the price of uh, butter, you know, how it has any influence on the question of politics in the here and now. Uh, and I'll get into why, but like, just to start with, that's what I'm kind of getting with as I'm reading this. So just to summarize what's in the chapter, which is uh, why the state has no origin, the humble beginnings of bureaucracy and politics. So this is where they're making uh, a challenge to conventional evolutionary models for human civilization that say there's this thing called the state that has these features and which evolves basically alongside the complexity of human uh, social organization. People, uh, as soon as you get a certain number of people, the, the, the old argument goes, a state will come into being to manage them. That, that is what they are in this chapter most, uh, that is the argument that they are trying to subvert and challenge. Uh, and one of the first way they do that is pointing out, this is a pretty uh, kind of a no-brainer, really. Uh, nobody can seem to, to agree on what the fuck a state is. There are a bunch of different understandings and explanations for what, what, what you have to have socially to have a state. Uh, and if that's the case, it makes you wonder, well, then what the hell is it, even is this thing uh, if it has no stable definition? If if it's if the definition of it seems to be motivated by the underlying uh, assumptions and and preferences again the political element of the person studying them, uh, so what they do is they bake down uh, uh the state into three things that exist in all modern states, uh, and that you might argue evolve at some point in human history somewhere uh, but they're going to point out are not connected necessarily which is what state formation theory previously had assumed and they are sovereignty that is monopoly of violence over territory ability to determine who lives and dies basically uh, in modern in modern uh, Uh, in modern Schmidtian terms, uh, deciding the state of exception. Uh, the other is, uh, and that is, and that is associated with, like I said, a monopoly on violence and the and the uh, the infliction of violence. Uh, only me or people that I explicitly uh, authorize can carry out violence. That is a element of the state, uh, and that is a monopoly and a hoarding of violence. The second one is. Administrative capability, which is essentially a monopoly and a hoarding on information. And the third is charismatic politics. That is the ability to get people to do things just because you're that awesome. You're able to demonstrate to them just how fucking awesome you are and how you deserve to be listened to and given things. Uh, and those three things are all to be found in like a mature state. And traditional models that they're once again challenging say these three things come into being not all at once, but in a sequence. And that's, and, the, and it's determined by, uh, once again, complexity of uh, de administering a bunch of people. So uh, in, in, in the traditional uh, model of this, 
the one that comes first is always administration. It is you got you got once you get X number of people and they're doing Y amount of complex uh, economic activity and, and and creating surpluses, then you need to administer their actions, and that that then becomes the the uh, thing that uh, generates charismatic politics <coughs> as people you know justify or vie for positions within this administration, which of course is going to, you know, be directing uh, orders in, in one direction. And, you know, people are going to be situated along it. And how do they do that absent, you know, formal mechanisms that haven't been developed yet other than uh, com- uh, charismatic comp- competitive politics? Uh, and that once you have this strata of power over uh, seeing this administrative apparatus, boom, you've got sovereignty. Because now you have charismatic leaders with control of administrative apparatuses who can use those apparatuses to uh, monopolize violence. This is not a fitted, by the way. It's got the classic thing in the back. I'm not, I'm not one of those. I don't even know my fucking head size. I couldn't get a fitted. Uh and so what Grabgro argue is that that is not some sort of fixed, natural, inexorable order. Uh, the the uh, Mesopotamian civilizations we've talked about that had these uh, relatively egalitarian uh, structures of distribution uh, in the cities, right? Oh, fuck, I flipped, I got this wrong. No, I'm sorry. Uh, what I'm describing is what happened in Mesoamerica, where you have this administration, and then you have the emergence on the periphery of charismatic politicians who then take it over and use it to avert so- sovereignty. The traditional definition is from administration to sovereignty, and then finally, uh, a, a charismatic politics devised to ratify those two things together. Uh but they're saying that Mesoamerica is another model uh, and that there's a model where you have charismatic, like, origin myths emerge from competition and then sovereignty adhering to those individuals. And then those individuals using that sovereignty to order people essentially to create an administration. So the point is there's no fixed way. There's a bunch of ways that these three things, three things can come together. Which means traditional notions of a conveyor belt of state formation are wrong. Uh, and then to make this point, they uh, pull up three examples of civilizations that emerged uh, early in human history uh, where one of these three elements of sovereignty are fixated upon and, 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 uh, and structures are built to uh, reinforce without the other two. Uh, and the first example is in Mesoamerica, where you have uh, where you had the Olmecs, uh, who were the progenitor civilization uh, in Mesoamerica before there were any Aztecs or any Inca or, or any Mayans, uh, who whose 
civilization such that it has left its mark is a, a is completely fixated on ritual competitive sport between aristocratic warriors. Uh, th- these ball game where you like hit a rubber ball with your hip and try to get it into a little little hoop uh, that was you know endemic among Mesoamerican civilizations and that Ome- that the Aztecs uh, also uh, played, but but all of their uh, residual physical culture is fixed on displaying uh, scenes of this comp- competition, uh, and this is like. This is an embodiment of a uh, a social order. You wouldn't call it a state, but a, a, a social order organized around charismatic politics, but which doesn't really feature any evidence of a uh, meaningful uh, administrative capacity besides the ability to administrate the war, the 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 wars and the sports that you know basically blend together. Uh, or uh, any real sovereignty extended beyond the territory of uh, the ritual space. Uh, They call this a theater state, where the implication is is that uh, rather than being like a fixed uh, structure, it is a temporary, perhaps seasonal coming together, where these games and sports uh, are carried off, and then everybody kind of goes back and does their own thing. Uh, the implication here is that a lot of the stuff that we see uh, in ancient, uh, r- like physical remainders, you know, temple complexes and and art that points to people who are like you know state-brained towards a world of like total domination and like permanent pos- uh, structures of control, could very well be a situation where the vast majority of people are either. Uh, are either humoring to get, just get al- get along with, or uh, actively participating as uh, in, uh, enthusiastic spectators to a temporary expression of like aristocratic uh, contest between warriors, but one that does not actually ref- uh, deal uh, that does not actually generate a capacity for sovereignty or administration that doesn't actually like rule over anybody. Not permanently. So this is a state, a state let or whatever, where you see one of the three legs and not the other two. Uh, another example, and this is the most interesting one. I'd never heard of this. And obviously, you, as you can imagine, and you'll figure out why in a second, this is very interesting to me. Uh, there is this uh, complex in the Peruvian Andes called Chavinda Huntan. My handwriting is bad. Huantar, I believe, which is essentially, which is in its physical remainders, what we're what we've found and looked at, uh, that was built and left, is uh, a society organized around tripping balls. Uh, the artwork and the uh, structures that are left are these psychedelic depictions of uh, forms not stabilized as they are in most ancient art, where you have this is a, a tiger, this is a human, and this is an eagle. And they're in some sort of interaction with each other. Rather, uh, human and animal shapes that went in and out of each other. If anyone, if that feels familiar to anybody who's ever, who's ever had a psychedelic experience. Uh, and that, like, their temple complexes, rather than being like a big 
big open uh, place for people to witness some ritual are rather a network of uh, a labyrinthine tunnels and chambers that people are led, that presumably people would be led through in small numbers or and in some cases uh, only uh, through narrow hallways or narrow passageways that could only allow one person. Uh, and that at the center of this one complex, there's this fucking, uh, uh, this carved and engraved stele, this, this pediment that presumably someone would at the end of a psychedelic journey come to and then bear witness to and come out of that experience with some sort of knowledge uh, that would then be, I mean, by definition, uh, esoterically held by people who had been initiated into the process. So here we see a civilization organized around the hoarding of knowledge that is the pre- basic premise of administrative capacity. But again, no charismatic politics. There's, no, there's nothing indicating any individuals in any of this, any of this art, uh, and no sovereignty of any kind extending beyond the immediate area where these rituals are carried out. And uh, I honestly think that if we really want to say, how did we get stuck? How did civilization get where it is? Where we got stuck in this, out of, instead of the shifting and protean uh, movement of people that characterized early civilization. And I got to say, at the end of the day, I'm probably, as, a, as a neophyte, I'm relatively convinced at this point of the grab-grow idea of early human so- uh, social order. Not as people on different levels of a continuum, but as a constantly shifting and pulsating ball until, until you get to a point where all these societies, they, they, like, they encounter one another, they are sh- uh, changed by their encounter, they uh, create stable uh, stability and uh, homeostasis within a certain situation, they come into an encounter with each other, they break up, but they're never... Uh, there, nothing is ever fixed and, and, and structured because, more than anything, the fact that people can move, the fact that human, uh, the human, civil, the human uh, numbers relative to the size of the planet and its resources are such that all real conflicts can be resolved by uh, moving, by going somewhere else, and, and that, that the uh, intoxicating... Uh, um, the intoxicating malleability of, of society that uh, grab grow uh, paint here uh, can be uh, maintained due to the malleability of the world, the literal environment we find ourselves in, because there is not the same, the, the stakes of resource conflict are different. Uh, but then we got stuck. They and they themselves describe it as being stuck, and, and and you know once you get to dominant states, then all of this stuff, in my opinion, goes out the window. Which is a big reason that I, I kind of wonder what the political utility of this is, because you know it it, it wipes the it, it it becomes a process of that that like flow that human flow that characterized like the global human community. Is is interrupted and reversed, and eventually, and it's it's a one way ratchet of those uh, those non uh, rationalized and dominated spaces being rationalized and dominated. And where does it start? I think it starts in those esoteric rituals 
that certain adepts find themselves engaging with in, or in these societies for the necessary uh, task of providing a religious narrative for the society, which is inherent and necessary. You want to talk about things that are not viable, that's one of them. Because to have a social order is to have a agreed upon, you can call it a narrative, you can call it a fantasy, you can call it ideology, whatever it is. And it could be, it is to one degree spiritual and another uh, secular, no matter what. It is both of those things. Uh, and so there, was, there are always going to be people who are going to be better at telling stories. They're going to be people who are better at convincing a narrative. This goes back to the charisma thing. Like, yes, the warriors are able to conquer by virtue of their physical prowess, but that physical prowess does not necessarily uh, go with an ability to narrate their actions. And it's the narrative of the actions that actually keeps things stuck together, that actually maintains social uh, cohesion. It is not the acts. It is the remembering of the acts. And by definition, the people who are going to deal that narrative cannot be the people who actually did them. They're going to be people who observed. So I'm talking basically about the indoor kids, the nerds. They're always going to be there. And they're going to be fundamental to the, to the uh, maintenance of any social structure. As fundamental as the warrior class. And everyone will know that. And how do, you main, how do you keep telling these stories in a way that convinces everybody, including, and this is the important part, you. Because this is not a self-conscious uh, uh, thing at this point. There is no uh, position of like radical skepticism of, uh, of uh, phenomena. I mean, yes, but it cannot be expressed. It cannot be uh, validated. Because... The social body is too overdetermining. It is extinguished by the continual, nonstop interaction towards the common goal of survival. So you're convincing everybody, including yourself. And one thing that helps with that, big time, is psychedelics. And maintaining your ability to narrate involves ritually encountering esoteric knowledge through the heightening of senses, which is what psychedelics at the end of the day do. This is, yes, yeah, I mean, some people saying, oh, duality, dualism. Yes, this is an imposed dualism. It is a lie agreed upon. And I would argue that the thing that allows you to dominate your fellow man is when enough of that group of people in a social order encounter the esoteric knowledge of non-dualism, the thing that can't persist socially because we need dualism to evaluate our, behavior, our, our environment and interact with it, like, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, we need to think in oppositions. So we won't encounter non-dualism, except in specific moments of contemplation, reflection, like the Buddha sitting underneath the damn banyan tree. Or, if you're too busy for any of that, 
uh, are psychedelics, but psychedelics matched with a specific ritual. Because remember, when we're talking about this Shavin uh, complex, it's not just blank walls, right? Like these are images that have been agreed upon to be depicted to lead you in a certain direction. And one of the things that can come from like the encounter with non-duality and then having your encounter with non-duality confirmed by others in an esoteric sect. One of the things you can, the re, one of the realizations that can become to, especially I would argue in conditions of crisis, ecological or otherwise conflict with other humans and changing ecological conditions that the same lie that you all tell each other every day about there being some difference between you as a group and the world around you is going to have to be furthered by a new lie that there is some difference between us within the group. Because, and we will rationalize it in our, in our t- temples, it's the only way that we will be able to be, to be able to get people to respond to the crisis that we see in time because these wonderful deliberative processes that Grave Girl loved to jack off about are inefficient, and they would agree with that. Yes, they're gloriously inefficient. They're wondrously inefficient. Yes, in times of fecundity, they are. They are a luxury that can be afforded under certain conditions. And when that luxury can no longer be afforded, the the amount of uh, time you give to getting consensus has to be constrained. And that means consensus has to be defined differently. Not everybody agreeing, but most people agreeing and the rest giving up one way or the other. Out of some threat or uh, browbeating. And then how... And then the greater the crisis, the more that uh, decision-making power has to be abrogated. So he says efficiency is not valuable. Perfect. Yes, because value is the the, uh, underlying premise of value is scarcity. And the societies that GrabGrow are jacking off to are ones where scarcity has been effectively abrogated. Not all the time, but out of the equations of like social life, written out of our decision-making matrix. Value comes into it when... Uh, uh, Consensus is can no longer be afforded. So this society, Shavan here, is the uh, is the ball stripping culture, where you have uh, uh, a a a surplus uh, redistribution effort that goes into the creation of uh, a alter that creates esoteric rather than public knowledge. Like the Olmecs are doing huge public spectacle to overawe and, and impress their uh, their neighbors. Basically, like Grabgro could argue, 
We don't think of it so much as to overpower them, but rather to, you know, vent their need to be seen and to be valued and to be, uh, to be applauded. And then they get it off their chest and then they can go back and to being like basically equal to everybody else uh, outside of that time frame. Which is, you know, that's the, that's the will to power that formulates, uh, that, that drives people towards a political life. The opposite is the Chauvin where all of the uh, public art is designed to move the elect, those who can perceive and re-express it, uh, towards esoteric knowledge that is perhaps taken and then brought with one back to one's community. Essentially a sacred college for the shaman or, or, or wise men or narrators of the community. To come here, have this experience, and then go back with this knowledge. But like the way that the Olmex, like what we're describing with the Olmex is that is essentially uh, that is the military arm of the state embodied, like the fundamental psychology of the military. And then at Chavon, you have the psychology of uh, the the bureaucrat the bureaucratic state extending to and defined by really more than anything the academy, right? The cathedral. If we're talking in uh, mold buggy in terms, this is where we actually like structure our narrative for understanding the world, which gives the army guys a mission and motivation to fight, but which, and here's the important part, this administrative structure built around esoteric knowledge cannot be in charge of a real state. It needs a thing on top of it, and that is sovereignty embodied at a single point. That is the king. And here we come to the last civilization, the Natchez in uh, the lower uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast area, in Louisiana, where uh, all of the surplus of the, of the social structure is brought to being and creating this uh, great village where the uh, Natchez son lives. The, God, the king, who has absolute sovereignty over everyone in his immediate vicinity. He can take any wife he wants. He can kill anyone he wants. He can take any objects from anyone. He can violate every rule that they had, every law, because the lawgiver must be above the law. The lawgiver cannot be constrained by the law or else he's not the giver of it. You have to be beyond good and evil to define good and evil. And that is what the monarch, that's what the uh, sovereign is for. Uh, but again, here, only sovereignty. Because outside of the great village, where he doesn't leave, nobody has to pay attention to the king. Nobody, nobody takes his orders if they don't want to follow them. And he has no administrative state 
to uh, even tell anybody what to do. But you have this, this unlimited sovereignty in an individual, which, of course, is then attenuated by those other things. It's attenuated by having a military. It's attenuated by having an administrative capacity. But then in its person, it is able to basically hide and mystify the hand of the academy. Because the reason you can't have the academy ruling directly, the bureaucratic class ruling directly, is because while they might be totally uh, uh, unable to see the self-interest that motivates their actions because they're ideologized like the rest of us. They've, they've enchanted, the important thing to understand here is they're not enchanting when they take power, when they, when they, when they redirect social structures away from communal uh, uh, life. They're not doing it cynically. They're not doing it, oh, I'm going to trick these fuckers. They're doing it because they have collectively come to a realization about what they think is necessary to survive and then covered it with their uh, faith in one another. Their, their uh, trust, which comes from having a definition apart from everyone else. That is, people who have the knowledge. People who know that this is all fake. That there is no world. That there is no distinctions here. But we're still bodies with feelings and emotions and uh, desires and uh, needs who would rather not experience suffering. So we have to work together as though we were different in order to reduce suffering. But that is a contradiction because now, once we're separate, fear takes over our relationship to the other. So this is all the stuff that goes into the subconscious transformation that occurs within like the, the, the academic, shamanic, Narrative, storytelling narrative class. Uh, but while their self-interest is invisible to them, it is nakedly clear to everybody else. If you are not in this class and you are part of a rapidly solidifying order of hierarchy that you're at the bottom of, and he's insisting to you that it's for the good and it's what God wants, him stuck in his subjectivity, doesn't recognize the vast chasm in experience between, you know, sitting around the fire and uh, eating berries and whatever the fuck and being in the fields doing fucking agricultural labor. Being at one end of the spear or the other. So that becomes like an x-ray machine. It shows the self-interest and creates alienation. You can't have that. You need an embodied sovereign standing in front of this uh, this bureaucratic consensus and mystifying it with his person, which stands outside of human interest, which is not the true of the administrators. So here we have three societies, each with a fixation around one of these three elements of sovereignty that doesn't contain any of the others. And I think the best way to explain that is this is society in flux. This is society that is seasonally and geographically unbound. This is society where we might look back through history and see these physical structures that were left behind 
And we might decide that they were the determining factors of the social order. But what was actually the case is that they were all temporary products of a temporary bringing together of people who might share a culture, share a language, but whose lives are largely spent responding to the cycles of nature. And these things we have, the, 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 the Olmec uh, ritual uh, game palaces and the Shavuian, uh, uh, uh ball-tripping palaces and the Natchez Great Village of, uh, of Ultimate Sovereignty and the Great Sun, is you have different ways for different uh, groups within a social order, not by like rank or hierarchy, but just affinity, aesthetic affinity, like the Olmecs, the jocks, the Chauvins, the, the nerds, uh, and the Natchez, uh, the, uh, the beautiful. Somebody with some physical, mental, inherited distinction from the people around them. That is, that these remains, remnants are these groups coming together and the society in general creating a ritual to allow them to either facilitate their ability, the, the, the skills, facilitate, uh, to facilitate the sharpening of the skills that they need in their communities. So, like, the Olmecs, they really fucking needed good warriors because it was a context of small states all fighting each other. Uh, in Shavon, it's, uh, you need the, uh, it, uh, the shaman, I don't know, maybe because of the, the ruggedness of the environment, because rather than most civilizations that emerge in the lowlands, this one emerges in the, in the treacherous Andes. And then in Natchez, you have this, this uh, overpowering sovereignty, probably because when everybody got together, because of how far away they were uh, and how little they interact with each other, because of just how far they could wander in this incredible uh, abundancy without hitting anybody else, when they get back together, they can't stop fighting one another. They're, they're, they're not, they don't have a common experience enough to avoid conflict. So you need a sovereign with sovereign power to, in that moment, when everyone's together, uh, keep everyone chilled out. This is, this is all just me, you know, imagining, but, like, that is the notion, is that in this, in this flow of human civilization, this up and down, this, uh, this steady state, a lava lamp of so, human social forms, what we're looking at when we look at archaeological evidence is just the sedimentary remnant of places where certain groups who spent most of their time in uh, control of their own lives in all the ways that Graeber defined, that Graeber defined, like being able to make, to make and change social relationships, be able to move away. Uh, there's one other one. Whatever. They're all there in, in, in abundance. And that what we have is not a permanent structure of dominance that emerges as soon as people come together, but rather the ornamental and... Uh, the ornaments of the necessary structures that emerge in those moments of concentration to facilitate everybody living together and everybody living apart. And again, I find this a very persuasive description of uh, 
of the the reality of social change before the emergence of the, of the real mature state. And like part of the argument they make with this is they point out that there is this strong uh, um, there is a strong bias against dark ages and interregnums uh, in the historical record when people are looking back on it because they don't leave all the pretty shit. They, it's only in the high uh, um, the apogee of like dynastic oppression and, and expansion that you see these golden ages of uh, material culture. And the, when there is when when there isn't that, when you have like fewer remaining uh, uh, pieces of physical culture, like beautiful masks and and uh, and pots and all this stuff, and the, the you have less of that, and the stuff you do have is of uh, is lower quality. It's more utilitarian, maybe because that res uh, that surplus isn't being held in the cities and held in the in the temples, but it's being used in the day to day by people, and that. You have as complex a civilization, you have as uh, you have all the same structures of cooperation that you have in those periods of high dominance, but you don't have a physical record of them, and so they become just these periods of, of anarchy. And again, I find that very, very persuasive as an explanation of how this stuff, how we get these narratives and, and how they hide what really was going on. Um. And so in trying to get, figure out how we get like more uh, mature states out of this flow, we go back to Egypt, where uh, Greg Rowe point out that the uh, figure of the king and later the pharaoh in Egyptian society uh, stands above humans, humans, but does not display that uh, charismatically. There is no culture of competition among humans in uh, ancient uh, Egyptian aristocracy. The pharaoh stood alone and unchallenged. Uh, the only real public rituals the pharaoh ever did were like a chariot race or chariot ride or something where they were the only person going. Uh, all those contests have been settled by the gods in the heavens. So there's no charismatic uh, culture. Um, but eventually you do see this really intense uh, administration emerge around the king in the form of uh, caring for him. Because this, this unchallenged God king requires a lot of care and feeding. He becomes basically a little baby. And that's why uh, monarchy is like the, one of the only uh, political structures that has, any, that has kids involved in any way. Because a baby could be a king. Baby cannot be uh, a ruler in any other uh, social structure, and that's because that sovereignty is in the is is in the person itself. It's not justified by uh, acts the way it would be in a charismatic uh, politics. It's it's fixed to the person, and that means that the person has to essentially be treated like a god, and that means fed and bathed and and, and pampered, and that means the the employment of a bunch of people to do that, which requires surplus to be given first to them and then to the, to the king. Uh, but then like the king can't die either because if it's, if it's their body itself is embodied, is imbued with godliness, then 
then that has to persist beyond death. If it doesn't, then why are we doing any of this stuff? None of it will last. There is no reason to suborn ourselves to this, even ritually. The ritual has no hold unless the king is preserved beyond death, unless we wrap him up and hold him up and continue to feed and water him. And uh, Gradro here uh, make a, an argument that the real thing that led to uh, the bureaucratic regime of agriculture ex- extraction in Egypt was feeding, was getting food and drink, beer and bread to dead kings. Because for some reason, and it's amazing that Gradro don't even stop to ask, hey, I wonder how this happened. Uh, it was decided by who, who do you think decided this? that the food and drink that the kings, the dead kings uh, consumed wasn't the same one that we mostly consumed, the living. The living mostly consumed stuff that was uh, accessible with relatively low uh, effort, low labor input foodstuffs. They could make beer and they could make uh, bread out of wheat, but that was a higher amount of calories inputted. That was a higher amount of labor required. So they mostly didn't, they used it as special occasion. But the king only drinks beer. The king only eats bread. So now to feed and uh, water this this dead guy, to keep him eating pizza and Budweiser, you create a permanent structure of agricultural surplus extraction. And again, it's amazing. They've laid out all of this, how this happens, and they don't stop. They just stop there. and They say, oh, no, see, that's what caused it. It wasn't the agriculture that created the state. It was the other way around. Like, once again, they're only making the narrow point that uh, it was in flux. Well, how about we try to determine some direction here? Who the hell is deciding what the goddamn uh, God King eats or drinks? It's not the God King. It's the priests. It's the priestly class. You don't think they recognize which types of food require what sort of social structures? that then bequeath unto them administrative capacities and sovereign capacities? So what we have is uh, this sovereign god-king who is now adhering sovereignty and, or I mean, is adhering uh, even without like the uh, the warrior culture? Uh, he is able to assert authority through this regime of agriculture to uh, to feed him. Now, this is unstable and collapses. And I maybe you can understand, you can see what the problem is here. Uh, the reason that the god that the that the uh, god king becomes immobile basically uh, becomes not a warrior, not someone who has to challenge his challenge and prove his power in the real world, someone who is born with it, is that it disempowers the warrior class. You cannot claim power through force. Again, who does this serve? Who is in the driver's seat? Now, somebody's saying, oh, he's blaming it on the Jews. See, the Jews get blamed for this because of their uh, 
their position in Europe and the fact that they were not allowed to engage in the uh, largely engage in like the the culture, the agricultural uh, value structure uh, of Europe, and were forced to adhere to those middle strata. I mean, they they got into the bourgeois basically because there was nowhere else to go. They were forced into it, uh, but they just. That's just a fucking happenstance of history. This is just a class taking power over time. And that class being uh, an administrative and bureaucratic class who is able to operate from a remove from other structures of power and therefore able to uh, assert control other of them. Now, what capitalism is, is when this class takes power and then creates technology that takes it away from them. Uh, because I would argue that capitalism is inevitable unless something else changes. But I would argue no. Like, yeah, cap- if we're talking about like this in fluid dynamic terms, capitalism is inevitable as soon as uh, a permanent regimes of state power become hegemonic. as soon as they can no longer be challenged by uh, other structures. Because, one, they will always beat the other structures because of their advantages uh, in efficiency. Uh, And two, uh, they are inherently, uh, like any other social structure, uh, in conflict with, like, the lived environment. But the problem is, is that without any fluid social order to take the energy away, to like take the venting, uh, 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 take the refuse created by uh, the contradictions within it, uh, it will crash the entire structure. But the thing is, people are making decisions, right? And at some point, people are going, but, but they only make decisions by abstracting away responsibility uh, and decision making to uh, questions that can be answered empirically. What I mean is, technology is built as like a wedge to facilitate administration, overawing charismatic power uh, and warrior uh, power, military power, which is what the state is. Like if the state is these three things coming together, the modern state as we understand it, one that can win against any other competitive, uh, any other uh, combination of these items, uh, is one where uh, real power has been concentrated in the bureaucratic and executive. But that requires a, a uh, programming. It requires a cultural algorithm to power every interaction within it. Because these are people making decisions, and they know that there's no right answer. And so they have to, at the end of the day, flip a coin. And that is the ritual of power. And the answer to that riddle that the administrative state gives is, a machine can flip a coin. And so we've had a a coin flipping, uh, we've had a machine flipping the coin, Ever since, and because this state structure within uh, with, uh, 
within a, like a closed ecological loop continues to destroy itself. And class conflict powers that destruction. Class conflict in conditions of a ecology that is still fluctuating, but it is now slapping against the whole of civilization rather than guiding it. And the only way that power can be held in that instance, in that phenomenon, is if it is personalized. Is if we can wrench our spiritual conception of the self inward and away from anything else that we could recognize as human, the way that we did with the stuff that we could recognize as, as something deeper than the arbitrariness of humanity in, a, in earlier times. And this is a thing that is. Uh, unidirectional, and that is a teleology, whether Graham Grow want to admit it or not, and that is uh, once you have that shift, once once there's that eternal cultural hegemon, hegemonic ideology that defines the self uh, differently than it used to, there's no going back from that. There's only going a furthering of the process. And capitalism is merely the uncloaked technological uh, exoskeleton of that cultural programming. That all uh, mature states are, mo- are, uh, engin- are um, that all mature states are powered by. And over time, it only gets worse. Our definition of, the, of, uh, of self becomes more inward-looking. And technology is what asserts that. Technology is what makes that first physical separation and then uh, first in, in space, like suburbanization, and then in time in terms of, yeah, you're, you're, you're not any farther away from each other than they used to be spatially, but you now have a cyber realm that you can spend time in that is not an engagement with any other person, but is mirror, merely a mirror reflection of the self. All our time spent online reflects the self and redefines uh, the self as separate. And that is the technological arm of this, uh, this logarithm that is deeper, I would argue, than, uh, than capitalism and goes back farther. Capitalism is the uh, social recognition of changing conditions, just as feudalism was, just as the slave empires were. Oh, shit, things are bad now. How can we stay on top? And then reconfiguring based on what is, that, what is allowed to maintain those two parameters. People in charge, staying in charge. Uh, And adjusting to uh, the new conditions created by the decline, the consumption of the world that cannot be re- uh, that cannot be redeemed fast enough. Okay, uh, so they posit that mature pharaonic power in Egypt emerges because this. 
Baby King setup is unstable because things get worse. There's a drought. People are starving. The Baby King can't do shit about it. And his bureaucracy can't do anything about it because it would mean them doing some work, which they don't want to do. So it collapses, but it does not collapse into anarchy and, and, uh, and uh, in a pejorative sense. It rather outbreaks in anarchy in, the, in, the, in a positive, grave-growing sense. And you go from the old kingdom to something that is referred to in the literature as the first intermediate period, a dark age before the second, uh, the, the, the new kingdom, or the, what, the regular kingdom? The middle one, middle kingdom, emerges. But Grabro says, rather than some collapse into, uh, into chaos that is then emerged out of sort of uh, without anything having changed, uh, rather, the formal, like, the power of the, uh, of the kingly sovereign class is reaffirmed because out of this collapse into petty principalities, you emerge a, a real charismatic heroic politics because people have to fight to live again. People have to fight to live in these declining conditions. And in so doing, some people are going to fight better. And by being able to fight better, they're going to and, and help others fight better. And organize a victory. And what victory means is plunder. And what plunder means is people eat. And that means this person now has a sovereignty invested in them by virtue of their actions, their heroic actions. And so the new pharaonic power that emerges has a base in that heroic era. But of course, then it grows decadent as uh, it becomes embodied in an inviolable person over time. And then conditions get worse. And the legitimacy is destroyed. And that's the cycle you get over and over again. And it's a cycle that we're in now. The difference, the only thing different between the, this uh, end-stage crisis of the system we're in now and previous declines of empire is that there's nowhere else to go. We have run out of the, the, the flow in the globe because we've totalized capitalism, that is, totalized dominance predicated on resource extraction beyond uh, uh, what is sustainable, beyond uh, self-sufficiency, piling up surplus to do violence with, that is to waste it. And eventually it collapses because within itself it cannot reform. Now the Marxist vision is that the specific technological reality of capitalism and how ca- and and what all of that previous cyclical action had created as a physical culture of objects and knowledge, i.e. technology, which was currently in the hands of the administrative sector of like Western rulers, but which could be taken by a working class that was living in the same, increasingly living in the same conditions that had produced the bourgeois. And their increased numbers would be enough to have them take power. Because if it's bourgeois versus workers, and they have the same level of cultural sophistication, access to technology, and the same uh, like uh, linguistic facility, all the same technological advantages of that had let the, the bourgeois rule from a position of minority, if they had those same things plus the numbers, plus all of these newly... Uh, enlightened workers who had been pulled from the ignorance of uh, of rural agricultural life that had let this thing go on for so long, unchallenged from below, really. I mean, you'd have cyclical peasant uh, uh, uprisings, but they could never uh, really overthrow power. They could only redistribute it a little bit. And then it would be reformed at the top. 
because they're fucking peasants. They're, they're farmers. They did not have the technological capacity to confront the bourgeois or the rulers before them, the, the feudal aristocrats, on their own terms. They needed to have access to the technology. And the Marxist vision is the working class would be able to do that. And they made a grab. They grabbed for the controls, but it was a failure. And now that means the terminal decline of an unchallengeable capitalist hegemony. Now, of course, that that makes you think, oh, no, that just means the cycle is going to continue. Well, maybe not if the world is completely destroyed, but I honestly don't think that's going to happen. I think that is what we want to happen the same way we wanted there to be a nuclear war to end all civilization during the Cold War because that's the happy ending because we're not missing anything. At the end of the day, that's what it is. We don't want to miss anything. At least I know that's kind of what powers my fear of life, fear of death. And by because we're we're addicted, like our, our our egos are addicted to sense. They're addicted to pleasure, pleasure of the senses. And that is, of course, why we are all in a constant state of uh, suffering, because we can never have the thing, the actual pleasure. We can only seek a idealized version of it. A capital D desire that can never be fulfilled. And if the world is a smoking crater, then we didn't miss anything. That's why the ending of Don't Look Up was such a terrible, catastrophically bad idea. If they really wanted to scare people about global warming. Because the vision of, of, of total annihilation is a rapturous one. It's why Dr. Strangelove is a comedy. So that means, of course, there's going to be a lot of misery, horrible. Beyond anything we can say, the slaughter to come, as Cameron Diaz said in The Counselor, will be probably be beyond our imagining because there is, there is nothing crueler than a coward. But... The Earth will endure, probably. Even if there is a nuclear war as a part of, like, climate breakdown, which is totally possible, I still don't think that ends life on Earth. I mean, think of it this way. People say, oh, if we get the six degrees of warming, that's going to unlock the Arctic permafrost. We're going to turn to Venus, and that's the end. There will never be anything else on Earth. Or, before we get to six degrees, political strife on Earth leads to a nuclear war, that, yeah, probably kills all or most humans, but also tamps down that, uh, that move towards six degrees and refrost that permafrost. Then, So if that does happen, then the thing that can be optimistic about is that if, there, if this cycle continues, this, this thing of uh, sentient beings coming into recognition of one another that is civilization, comes that, that process begins, the wreckage of what we leave behind is going to be what they sift through to build it. And uh, they will be different people than us because of that experience. And it's essentially the same... The, like the sucker of optimism comes from faith in faith in the faith in that which cannot be seen because 
Um, everything we see around us, the structures of domination that run our lives and, and, and the experience of living that we are compelled into makes us feel like, uh, you know, life is uh, misery and that there's no point to it, but we're all still alive. And we all value things that go beyond that sick desire cycle. And we don't have a name for any of them, and they cannot be identified in the fossil record any more than the evidence of Grab Grow's uh, sort of egalitarian uh, autonomous lifestyles uh, are left. And like the word love is an easy one. Uh, to use to define this stuff. It's sa it's sappy, but it's real. That's what art is. Art is this is the remnant of that which cannot be uh, formalized, cannot be seen. Because what it is, is it is a feeling below the ability to replicate it, which is the same experience as seeing God. You can have the experience, and it will leave an emotional residue. But that residue, as time goes away, as time moves in one direction, as entropy moves in one direction, uh, our ability to put any words to it goes away. Our, our ability to communicate it in any meaningful way goes away, which is why esoteric knowledge of the kind that is hoarded by the shaman of the universe and helped bring about civilization as we know it, uh, can be generated sort of uh, with, generated and maintained. Because you get somebody in an altered state, show put them through a ritual, and then in the immediate aftermath of that experience that can't be named, can only be felt, and is felt as this oneness, this, this uh, peace, this serenity, this absolute, and this is the important part, Absolute certainty, which is something that none of us can have in our moment-to-moment -moment life and certainly can never express in any sort of language. And I think depression, a lot, one of the big reasons that we're all depressed as a culture is how few opportunities to have those feelings we have. And so that means all we have is our uncertainty. And uncertainty breeds fear and misery and, and desire and suffering and all that. But there are, you can feel ultimate certainty. And of course, that's what religious fanatics and psychopaths go out and seek. And they destroy the world in seeking it. They never find it. If they found it, they wouldn't be doing that. But it's that seeking of it that powers their actions. And we're all seeking it in, in self-destructive ways because you can't seek it formally, without violating uh, our laws of reality, like our understanding of reality as, as monads, as unconnected beings bouncing off one another in, an, in a totally chaotic, random uh, stew of matter. Like, yeah, you have no faith without doubt, but the certainty still lives underneath it as a memory, but not as something that can be expressed to others. The closest we have are the symbols of religion and mythology, or an attempt to 
evoke in us a, the memory of the feeling. And the more successful they are at doing that, the more effective they are as, uh, as cultural technology. But in a class society, we have these symbols that are meant to evoke these feelings, and to some extent they still do, but to put to the service of a system that alienates us and makes us miserable and pulls us away from that feeling of certainty. And it's that fundamental schizophrenia that defines life under capitalism, yes, but only because capitalism is the faster and more technologically uh, advanced and more uh, ecumenically uh, experienced than previous ones. There are more people on earth and more of them are experiencing life that way. But it's a schizophrenia at the heart of power throughout history. And it, it but it's have felt within the power, power, those with power and those without. Because these symbols are to evoke this feeling and yet our lives are determined by structures that, that, that insist that that feeling is the lie. That that certainty of what unity, that certainty of unity is a lie. Not sustainable. It can only sustain itself as long as surplus can be extracted to lubricate its creaky wheels, to keep the friction to a minimum. And as soon as the lube runs out, the thing starts falling apart. The Roman Empire was the first version of this that really dominated uh, the, the geographic area that would be most amenable to uh, technological innovations because of its competitive state framework. But this is why I ultimately don't really see the, how, how, why this book is supposed to be blowing everyone's mind politically. Because as I said, they are correct. There once was a churning sea of human social forms moving in and out of existence uh, with the tides, with, with the tides of history and with the uh, random, randomness of event. But that flow is interrupted by a fixed regime of power dominating first one geographical area and then extending outward. And then history is these things popping into being like tumors in a fucking liver and then growing like the malignancies that they are. It's a very fun book. I'm having a lot of fun with it. And, I, and I'm glad I'm actually glad for all the cool information. Like I really do. This has helped me think about history significantly. Like this stuff about like, you know, the global flow, that's really useful. But as a political thing, which they're trying to emphasize, I don't get it. They're trying, they're saying you can live collectively with all of the uh, uh, cultural stuff, all the things we think of as necessary for a, for a real, like, meaningful civilization. The things that ref make us reflect on our oneness, but allow us to enjoy our separateness. This is basically what he's hoping for and what uh, uh, Marx was seeking to create on Earth and what is the end point of all human civilizations. The, or the, the, the imagined endpoint, regardless of what they're actually creating, a situation where, yes, 
there is uh, enough freedom to allow us to live not in fear of one another and enjoy the separateness of each other, enjoy our variance, enjoy the randomness that our temporary appearance gives us, but to recognize that we are not separate but different faces of one another. That is to live without fear. That is to live without doubt. And Grabgrow are arguing that you can have that. Of course, not perfect. People are not going to feel that way all the time. There's miseries of life. Life is suffering and pain. But there's going to be a baseline that maintains a homeostasis that minimizes things like gender violence, uh, warfare. Uh, ritual sacrifice, and class conflict born out of alienation because there will not be that fundamental uh, schizophrenic break between the symbols as we are to observe them as they are propagated by those in power and, as it is, and what it is like to live under them. But once these tumors start popping up because of changing uh, ecological conditions and people responding to them at different points, until somebody responds to them in a way that gives them a competitive advantage because it reduces a degree of inefficiency that allows for decisions to be made quicker, for, uh, for social alienation to be directed inward or directed outward and pointed at an enemy as opposed to staying inward and undermining uh, from the social body. And then it starts gobbling up all those egalitarian areas behind, besides them. Like they've described several times how in Mesopotamia you had this relatively egalitarian uh, settled urban culture in Ur, and then on the peripheries of its trade network, these heroic kingdoms, people who basically were like, this stuff is gay. Like, I'm a big, strong guy. I don't want to have to listen to these people and do what they want to do. I want to go out and kill people. I got a lot of testosterone flowing, and, I could, and if I fight, I know I'll win. Or at least I have a strong belief that I'll win. Unlike the fucking nerds in there who are like, no, I don't want to fight. I might die. And they go out on the periphery, and they create these warrior cultures that under conditions of ecological flux allow force to be de- employed in a way that decapitates these egalitarian cities and takes them over from outside. And that does seem to be what happened in Mesopotamia. You have, like, They've talked about how, like, the, 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 the council structure that they had had before the king showed up persisted after the kings took over. And the, the day-to-day life of Urkians uh, of, was not that much disrupted, disrupted by having a king. Uh, but, of course, over time that changed. And that power wrenched downward throughout the social order as stresses accumulated, as other empires emerged that copied them in order to fight with them. So they have a thing in here where they describe how uh, bureaucracy actually emerged, uh, not 
to facilitate domination, but to actually uh, facilitate egalitarian distribution of resources. A little village in uh, Syria where 6200 BC, a fire happened that, that fixed this community, this clay uh, structures and baked them. And we have, what do we got? What do we know? We got a little village, equal sized houses and a central storeroom and a symbolic, uh, a collection of like symbolic tokens used to keep track of distribution of resources. So this is, and no king, no power. So boom, we got bureaucracy to facilitate uh, egalitarianism. Similarly, uh, there's a system in uh, Inc in Peru, the ILU system of distribution of resources in a community to make sure that everybody has land and that nobody gets too much power, no, too much money, uh, where it's all debts that are accumulated over a period of time. Uh, the technology, like these knotted bits of string that were used to, to count and, and, and record keep, were all like loosened out at the end of the year in order to keep everybody square, uh, which is sometimes associated with the Incan uh, uh, kings, but which preceded them and was then taken by those kings, just as in Mesopotamia. Those bureaucratic structures are now taken over to impose e equality, as in we're all equal as uh, subject, we're all equally subject to the king, but with the demands that that comes with being equalized as well. Like, look, the king demands X from everybody. You're all the same. But of course, everybody isn't the same. And what those systems, like the Iul system, would do is recognize difference. Oh, this guy's got a bro broken leg. He can't uh, bring me as much. He can't uh, produce as much crops. You know, there's, there's someone sick here. Okay, so we have to redistribute the labor, and we will redistribute it collectively so nobody feels like they've been forced to do anything. Now the king comes in and says, no, you all need to give us X because you're equal. Well, some people aren't going to be able to. And now we have the new class of slaves. We have the new peons. We have the new concubines. We have the people who can be subject to violence, who are written out of the contract, because we've imposed equality through bureaucracy. But one designed to dominate. And it's like, once again, I think that's a very elegant uh, structure that is persuasive to me as to how that happens. But again, it pretty much always happens in that direction over time, is that the warrior caste society that is able to create uh, an aristocracy of physically powerful uh, and militarily skilled warriors who work perhaps with a priestly class, but who overawe and dominate the priestly class. Because even the priests think that these guys are gods because of their power, because of how awesome they are and what they've seen them do, what they've seen them do. They're going to be able to exercise violence much more effectively than your fucking little community garden uh, co-ops. And then they decapitate you and they take over and eventually use all of your structures to their ends. So this is, we get to the end of the chapter. Uh, and they, they conclude, states emerge not out of inevitable processes of evolution, but through happenstance. And that play kingdoms become real, ritual structures that are meant to be temporary get elongated uh, into permanence. But the civilization pre-exists states. And they end with a description of Minoan Crete, which very well might have had a <coughs> theocratic form of government where like priestesses 
female priestesses ruled over men, like the island in the Nick Cage version of Wicker Man. And they basically they use this just to point out that even though you have all this physical evidence that yeah they had some sort of democratic uh, like witches coven running over them, uh, nobody in archaeology will call it that because they just have refused to believe it could exist. Well, look at imagine how much that uh, the regime of discrimination, like refusal to say take evidence at face value. Uh, the applic- the application of like a rigor a rigor that would never exist in to, that they would never extend to anything that affirmed their beliefs. Uh, imagine how that shapes all of our understanding of history. And it's like yes, correct. Once again, I think they've made their their argument very persuasively. And at this level, I'm I'm ready to say it makes sense to me, so I'm going to believe it because that's all I can end up going with. But again. My big takeaway is that they make no argument yet. There's one chapter in the conclusion left uh, that uh, for like anarchism in the now and here and horizontalism in the now and here that um, that deals with my central problem, which is what we've shown pretty conclusively in this book is that the inefficiency, which is a virtue, the social virtue, if you want to keep something stable, and long-lasting, in isolation, that inefficiency of decision-making is a virtue. It allows you to have bureaucracy, and, uh, uh, and it allows you to have uh, priest warrior classes, and it allows you to have uh, sovereigns and, and without feeling like you're being exploited. It allows you to do that. But again, that's only in a stable state. The stable state is not possible in the uh, in a condition where humans are coming into contact with each other and recognizing strangers and not friends, which is the definition of all interactions between humans. Once you get past a certain degree of human uh, of of a certain level of human civil uh, human population, not within a group, which is what they do a good job of undermining, but Collectively, how many people there are on the earth? And eventually they start bouncing into each other and bumping into each other. And once they do, they're going to adapt to that reality where they can't go somewhere else and maintain their level of inefficiency of structures, where they have to stand. And if they have to stand, then they have to change their structures. And what's going to have to go is all of this glorious inefficiency, all these areas for consensus and uh, uh, and response to the land and each other recognition it has to be hierarchicalized now the 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 marxist teleological dream the culmination of like the human experience that we're all yearning for is for the regime of technological administration that we have developed that is absolutely capable of of providing for everyone on earth not in equal conditions but in conditions of minimal alienation, this is what I mean. Not equal conditions, and they would agree. Equality is, means nothing, really, if you don't have uh, basic buy-in to the social structure you're part of. We have we, we could turn this. It might be too late now. I mean, it, it is too late now with what we have. But, like, during the 20th century, when there were still hinge points of real uh, 
contingency in the battle between the working class and bourgeois that characterized the 20th century, if things had broken a little different, and and here's another part of the thing that makes me optimistic fundamentally, in another world they did. In another version of Earth, they absolutely did. A version of Earth that is as real as ours. They did. That where the feelings and the blood and the and the and the sweat and the toil and and the grandeur and the the aesthetic heights and and the all of the the, the beautiful like marbled uh, experiences that every all the billions of people on this planet have felt have been felt there too. That the working class directing this administrative alienated technological state could create, could take that technology and put it to the work of creating a unequal, and the thing is, it wouldn't stay unequal, right? Like, it's not like, oh, you're telling me that all the people in Africa who live in, like, uh, absolute poverty are going to just stay in absolute poverty but be happy about it now? No. Because there will be a project of alleviating that poverty. Alleviating that that poverty will be a collective goal accepted by every structure of human civilization and moved towards, which means surplus being moved from one part of the structure to another, from one geographic area to another. But those people in the middle not being dispossessed, not feeling like they're losing anything, because without the need to affirm hierarchy through surplus, the but still, this is crucial, able to enjoy difference, but do it ritually. Enjoy difference ritually and also in the performance of a act, a heroic collective act of pulling people out of misery and poverty. And then once you get there, what's next? There's a reason that the Soviets set the fucking uh, terms of competition between the United States and the Soviet Union on Space exploration. We would never have gone to the moon without the Soviets. We might be going there now, but only as a last gasp effort to find value somewhere else and perpetuate human civilization as it becomes untenable on Earth. We went to the Soviets because the, the Soviets understood, like, once you've created a, a, a peaceful uh, once you have created a, a social order that allows everyone to work in one in one towards one goal, using the technology uh, that the concentration of capitalism has allowed to uh, to be birthed into being, all that misery, all that human misery, created these things that can then be used. Now. That was the Marxist vision. I would argue that that's also the anarchist vision. Because, like, even when they say there's no authority, it's like, well, they still, what? It's a bunch of collectives, but those collectives make decisions, and they're making decisions with, by definition, this, like, increased technological capacity that is being used towards the social end of pacifying violence between people. So that means even your anarchist communal uh, horizontalism would bring about this condition of a general level of Minimal uh, sustenance, safety, certainty of safety. You go to the fucking stars. You can literally go to the uh, 
conquer, not conquer, but explore and touch and reflect on oneself throughout the galaxy. And we basically forced the United, the, the, we, the, the Soviets basically forced the United States to create some sort of a uh, vision for, uh, for interstellar travel that like, there's a reason that all those like America buffers like Tom Hanks fixate on the space program because it was our it was our best vision but of course in America it was a crime to do that. Whitey's on the moon. To do that to go to the moon when you have so much misery in your own country makes that country look like a joke and 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 sadism to everyone within it. Going to the moon then when there isn't anybody who feels that way again not that they might not be suffering. Of course, they're suffering. Everyone's suffering. But that they don't attribute their suffering to the state. They don't attribute their suffering to society. They're able to deal with it on its own terms because they are not alienated from it. Again, some people are. There's always misfits. There's always outcasts. There's always people who can't function. But instead of now, where the misfits and outcasts are people who literally want to feel, uh, It'll be people who like were traumatized individually and like le- were the product of legacies of trauma that are still going to echo into the future, even if we ever got to that level of social sophistication. And they can be dealt with on that level. That is the, the horizon of like prison abolition, is that people who are misfits can be identified as such and brought back in. And those who don't can't be reconciled are such a small fat percentage of the population that you don't need permanent structures of domination to keep them away or to scare people away from being them. So this is the universal uh, horizon. It's the only horizon we can have. It's the horizon we're not going to get now without a collapse, and which we probably, as you, like, I mean, like, this could literally be a project of the squids in 100,000 years. Whatever, whoever does it, that is, that is the geist coming into full recognition of itself. And what it requires is the awareness and recognition that any structure of power that the liberatory collection of people, most of them by definition workers, but not all, could put together, would by definition have to have structures of efficiency of action equal to the forces that they would come into conflict with. Because if they don't, they will be defeated. Which is why every great historical anarchist fable ends in destruction, be it it anarchist Catalonia or Nestor Manco's Ukraine. They all get stomped. So that is why I think this is both a great book, but from the point of view of what the authors wanted, a failure. Because at the end of the day, they cannot really, as anarchists, really ground their analysis materially. Every time they try to, you can see them in the book doing this. They start resisting because, you icky materialism. You're going to start telling me that I'm not a free being. You're going to start telling me that I my my actions have been 
uh, predetermined by uh, material factors. Gross, icky, no thank you. Instead of moving through that, working through that liberal, frankly, juvenile objection, and then coming out the other end of it. Go through the fucking tunnel and come to the, to the, the, the pillar and do not be afraid. But no, you got to run away from it. You no, you're saying I'm not a free being. Uh, uh-uh, uh, no materialism for me. So that means, like, when they're talking about, you know, uh, uh, they're 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 glorying in the inefic- the glorious, the, they're glorying in the inefficiency and the freedom of these uh, uh, structures. They never consider what allows that to persist materially. They just take it for granted. And what they do not recognize is that a social structure that can make decisions through administrative structures that depend on unquestioned hierarchy as opposed to having to establish legitimacy anew every time an order is placed can do things in a way that allows them to harness the technological weapons of society and then direct them towards the domination of others with all of the misery that it has caused internally facilitating it by being directed outward. I mean, it's, it's astounding. It's an astounding machine. And there's a reason that it won. There's a reason it took over. And there's a reason the only thing that can defeat it is a self-conscious state structure, not necessarily any of the states we have now, like, the United States, LOL, no. But in terms of something that has all three of those things that he talked about. But where instead of being concentrated in a sovereign uh, that is above us, a sovereign that is within us, And that can only be facilitated. That feeling of a sovereign that is within us and is us, but is also separate from us, that's only possible through humans going through a a process of alienation from the world that becomes terminal, which is where we are now. We are terminally alienated from the world around us. We are terminally selfish in a way that is not stable. The only next step the only thing after that is either complete annihilation, as I said, possible but ine- but not inevitable, and not likely, honestly, or the final realization of that neurotic separateness, which is a re-fixation, a re-enlargement, a, 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 a spiritual big bang that reinscribes us as part of a collective and that allows us to participate in hierarchical structures without being dominated by them. Able to utilize bureaucracy and administrative administration and, and exploit separation of labor, at least temporarily, until the degree of technology is sufficient that the amount of labor doesn't have to really suck. Star Trek future. 
See, like in, under capitalism, if you're this is one reason people can't imagine what socialism would really look like, like post scarcity socialism. Because under capitalism, yeah, if you don't have anything to do, you go crazy. If you don't have a job that is uh, productive in some way, uh, it turns your brain into mush uh, because uh, you're not engaged in anything meaningful because you can't make meaning. Uh, and as an ideologized subject of capitalism, that's what you want. But in a post-scarcity communism, that idleness is where we work, where we work. And of course, that's something that probably will never happen. That's, once again, a a fantasy horizon that keeps you on the treadmill. But what will exist is a place where uh, the the actual pain, the actual alienation of uh, of carrying out a... uh, like a divided labor, although the labor division should be minimized as much as possible, where they have to exist, uh, minimized in such a way that that it's absorbable by the social fabric around it, which is not what we have now. All everything, every alienation is shooted outward into into misery that we feel that we then express to the people around us, and it dissolves the social fucking foundations from within. I mean, we're in the middle of that right now. We can see that all around us. And yet we're, we're, we're part of it, and then we're also seeing it and revolted by it. And the more we're revolted by it, the more we, we in, engage in it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a doom cycle. But, like, for example, say there's no technology that's going to make it so that somebody doesn't have to, uh, you know, go into a sub, to the sub, sewers and, like, fix something or, you know, deal with shit, deal with gross stuff have to do something like with your body that is painful or uh, unpleasant. Somebody could do that job, but somebody could do that job for like two hours a week. As opposed to being compensated in money, they can then use to, to buy things that come at the expense of others and that just drown the misery. And by expanding it, uh, you can just do anything you want, which will be constructive by definition. It'll be constructive in one way or another. It will be it'll be constitutive. It'll be constitutive of human of social life, and therefore will be positive. And some of it is going to be fucking uh, astrophysics, because people are still going to want to answer those questions, and they're still going to have the capacity to do it. They're going to have more technological access than ever to try to pursue those questions. Everything that we do now that is productive, like meaningfully socially productive will still be carried out because the desire to express that feeling of connection, love to each other is still going to exist. But some people are going to want to express that love by finding out if there's other uh, species in the universe. Or if you can, you know, see God. And if you've conquered matter, you can do that until everything possible that could happen has. And every version of redemption and rapture and, and revival that any, of, any human uh, uh, symbolic order has ever uh, believed in 
can be can happen. So yeah, we're all we're all gonna rise again. We're all gonna meet each other in the great by and by. And knowing that makes it a lot easier to deal with the the real misery of, of living in the black iron prison that we are in. So yeah, I gotta say, uh, grab, grow, valiant effort. Uh, and I think they really do believe that they're, dismantling uh, Marxism in some way with this or providing an alternative non-Marxist egalitarian uh, uh, social history to, to rival the Marxist one. But uh, sorry, swing and a miss because it, because it cannot be materialist, it cannot be truly metaphysical and it cannot really reckon with the alchemical transformation that goes on when a society, uh, breaks into classes and creates uh, rituals around the perpetuation of them. And then it makes a new type of person. I've talked about this about this book before. And that you can't go back. You can only move through. And that means that you have to grapple with the, uh, the institutional and technological consequences of those transformations. Well, no, they, I know anthropology has a non-Marxist class analysis, but it's it's academic. This they want to make this into like a popular alternative to Marxism. It, look how big it is, and they're talking about apparently like before he died, Grab was talking to Grabgro about about to Wayngro. Wayngro, <laughs> he that would be funny if this was Graber and Wayngro, the guy from Heat. Um, he about this Kevin, it's uh, Grabgro. But they want like they were gonna do like a whole series with this. Like debt, it was gonna be like this and debt, and, like some other books, and they were, they were trying to do like an alternative to uh capital based on anthropology here. But while I think it does provide a real moving and plausible uh analysis of that. Of, of what human uh, society uh, li- looked like before reaching a uh, a population threshold. And this is the important thing. Grabgrow are trying to take that on, explicitly say, no, it's not a function of population. And I think what they're doing with the book, and they're doing a good job of it, is saying, yes, not within population of a given group. But once you get enough people so that they're bumping into each other as strangers. It creates pressures on these forms that push them and extrude them in one direction. And that we've been living in the consequence of that ever since. Okay, so there we go. That's chapter 10. Next week, we're wrapping up here. This is the last uh, formal chapter. Is chapter 11. Ha! Ends on chapter 11. How many chapters does debt have? Because if it's 11, that'd be pretty funny. Uh, 
on the historical foundations of the indigenous critique. Oh, I'm sorry, it's full circle. So we're going to go back to the indigenous critique of uh, civilization that began the book and 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 uh, finish bricking up their monument to uh, the be- the ecstatic wonder of of matriarchal uh, a consensus society. That has 12 chapters? Oh, man, swing and a miss. And then there's a conclusion. I think I'll probably do the conclusion because, you know, to wrap the whole thing up will be nice with its own episode. Uh, So two more of these, and then maybe, like, after that, I'll do, like, a a and a or something before we figure out the next book. If anyone has any suggestions, please let me know because I'm going to need another one after this. All right. Talk to you guys later. Bye.